Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my co-conspirator and partner in crime, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello, everyone. Hey, man. Uh, today, we're going to uh, do uh, something that's kind of been custom for, uh, customary for us sometimes. Um, is that an oxymoron? Customary for us sometimes. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, has, has become um, something that we uh, uh, do when we uh, deep dive a city's mob affairs. Sometimes we will start uh, with something that's happening in the headlines today and then uh, go backwards and, and do kind of a retrospective. So uh, our, ep- our episode today on Original Gangsters Podcast is about uh, the Boston um, Mafia uh, as well as the Winter Hill Gang, which is the Irish mob in Boston, and then um, the Black Mob in Boston that was out of Roxbury. Uh, but we're going to start with what's in the headlines right now. And that is the fact that uh, I think of the um, the line in Godfather 3 uh, where Al Pacino says, just when I'm out, oh, yeah. they pull me back in. Yeah. And I think of Vinny the Animal Ferrara, and uh, he's who we're going to start off uh, discussing. Uh, Vinny the Animal um, is the subject of a pretty sprawling organized crime investigation right now by the Massachusetts State Police and the uh, Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's not a federal investigation. Um, It is a state investigation. Uh, Vinny the Animal was a big, big time up and comer in the 70s and 80s, became a capo took over the North End, which is, the you know, Boston's Little Italy. By the time he was 40, I believe, he was, uh, he was running, running the North End. And, uh, so he was, he was mentored by the Angelo brothers? Is that correct? Yeah, so he was mentored by Danny Angelo, who was Jerry Angelo's brother. Uh, the Angelos were the, well, Jerry Angelo was the underboss of uh, the New England mob from the late 50s uh, to the mid-80s. But uh, in terms of Boston, Massachusetts, he was the godfather. And he ran the North End with, uh, I believe, three or four of his brothers. And uh, one of his brothers was uh, Donato Angelo. They called Smiling Danny. And uh, Danny mentored Vinny the Animal. And Vinny the Animal is uh, an outlier in the fact that he is a gangster that has a college business degree. Yeah, I noticed that. That's interesting. Um it took a page out of what's what was happening in Detroit. Yeah, I mean, other than Detroit, <laughs> that's incredibly. Yeah, rare. there aren't a ton of them. But Vinny uh, went to Boston College and got an undergraduate business degree, and then uh, was on the fast track in the patriarchal crime family. Uh, was at the center of a mob war that erupted in 1989, which pitted Vinny and. Uh, Joe J.R. Russo, who was the, the capo of, of uh, East Boston. Uh, so the North End and East Boston collaborated, I guess, or joined forces in a war against uh, Providence and uh, Cadillac Frank Salemi, who had come out of prison and, although he was a Boston guy, had aligned with Providence and uh, Winter Hill, the Irish mob and was about to take over as boss of that crime family, and, and Ferrara and Russo were opposed to it, and they tried to kill him, 
and he survived an assassination attempt uh, at an IHOP uh, in Saugus, Massachusetts. The underboss at the time of the, of the patriarchal crime family, Billy Grasso, was killed that same day. It was a coordinated effort where they killed one in the morning and then tried to kill another one in the afternoon. And Grasso was with Cadillac. Grasso and Cadillac right. were together. Yeah, right. And, and Billy Grasso and Cadillac Frank Salemi were Junior Patriarca's muscle because yeah. Junior Patriarca was a weak boss uh, who was nobody was afraid of. And um, I guess that maybe the best uh, rubber lips. analogy. Is that what they called him? Yeah, they called him Ray Rubber Lips or uh, Junior. <laughs> I think the best um, pop culture analogy would be uh, Little Carmine oh, yeah. uh, in, in The Sopranos. Yeah. Uh, so step up, Carvine. You know, you got the support, right. You know, that was remember that yeah, was in the last of course. season. <laughs> uh, and the fact of the matter was that Raymond Patriarca Sr., the namesake of the Patriarca crime family, was an incredibly respected, feared, powerful mafia don, and his son was the opposite. And by him tapping his his kid uh, before he died. I think the New York crime families were the official electors of him because he died suddenly, but I believe it was known amongst his inner circle that he wanted his son to take over for him, and it just, it was a huge misstep. Uh, and Vinny Ferrara could attest to that. Uh, so Vinny Ferrara engaged in this, in this shooting war. Um, little did he know that he had a ally in the mafia that was cooperating, uh, Sonny Mercurio, and he was kind of dead to rights before the war even started. So very shortly after the war, he's indicted, and he goes to prison uh, between 1990 and 2006, convicted on a racketeering. In that federal racketeering, there was a murder charge, uh, the 1985 gangland slaying of Jimmy Lamoli who was Vinny Ferrara's bodyguard and driver. Um, what was that about? Why would he have his own guy? Yeah, so let, let, I'm going to get into that in a second, but okay. let's uh, first tell everyone what what's yeah, actually okay. happening right now. So Ferrara got out in 2006 when they tossed the Lamoli murder. Uh, originally, he was supposed to spend, I believe, 25 years in prison or 25 to 30 years or 25 to 40 years. And uh, when they... When the murder case got tossed on a technicality, oh, actually, no, it wasn't a technicality. That's, that's the wrong way to categorize it. The prosecutor withheld information from the Ferrara legal team, which if he would have known that information, he would not have copped the plea to the Lamoli murder. Um, it was a, another member of his crew that had initially had pointed the finger to, uh, at Ferrara for killing Jimmy Lamoli in front of a grand jury, and then recanted the testimony, and Ferrara's attorneys were never alerted that this guy, whose name was Walter Jordan, had recanted his testimony. Vinnie Ferrara then pled to the murder. Fifteen years later, it's tossed on the fact that he wasn't provided that information. So he had served his, his racketeering sentence, walked out in 2005-06, is said to have retired. Uh, there's some speculation over the last uh, 15 to 20 years about whether he's actually retired or if he's semi-retired. Um, I don't think there's anyone 
well, I shouldn't say that. There's this, there's the state of Massachusetts that's claiming that he's fully active. Uh, before this investigation was launched, I had been told that he was semi-active, acting in, a, you know, in an advisory capacity, but wasn't really shot calling per se. And how old is he again now? So he's 73. In the mafia world, that's not old. Yeah. Well, you know, and he you know came out, mean? and he came out. He was fifty-five. Right. Right. Uh, so he took a pinch back in 08, a state pinch for uh, bookmaking. He beat that case at trial, claiming that it was, uh, you know, miscommunication or or a uh, misrepresentation of what he had been doing. Uh, anyway, it didn't stick on him. He hasn't had any problems with the law, uh, and then. In 2021, the attorney general and state police organized crime investigators seized almost $300,000 from two Ferrara bank accounts, claiming, well, I guess they didn't claim anything. Uh, The assumption is that they were that, that, that it was monies that the government is chalking up to illegal activity, and that's why they're seizing it. They didn't say that, though, in Ferrara. Would it be tax evasion or something? What, do we even know what? We don't it? know. Okay. We just know it's $270,000 um, that Ferrara claims was a result of uh, a real estate transaction that he helped broker, and then there was another... Uh, source of the money that he claimed and i guess the money was seized back in the fall of 21 last september and then a couple weeks ago his attorneys uh let this all let the cat out of the bag i guess and went public filed a lawsuit demanding that money back which was alerting the public that the money had been taken right because there is uh you know, there are cutbacks everywhere in, in mob reporting in America is, is at a, at its, you know, uh, is at a time where there's, there's frankly not a lot of it. Even, uh, even the cartels, the American, yeah. they don't report enough on the cartels. And that, if they're going to devote resources to anything, it's that. And they still don't, they don't even do that, let alone bikers or Italians right. or anything. So I know. believe if this was 20, 30 years ago, it would have been reported that, Ferrara had had money seized from his bank accounts and that that was a result of an ongoing racketeering probe yeah. by state authorities. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't come out until a couple of weeks ago when Ferrara's attorneys filed a lawsuit seeking the money returned and claiming that they, that they have not told him why they took the money. They're not saying explicitly that it was illegal money and that he, he's, he's claiming that he can account for the money. Uh, I, f- I find it somewhat comical, but, but apropos for where we stand in, in uh, uh, the American media's coverage of the mafia at a mainstream level, that the Boston media completely and utterly, you know, lost the forest of the trees here and buried the lead in their story. All the, the leads, the lead in all the stories was that Vinny is seeking Three hundred thousand or two hundred seventy thousand dollars returned from him. The lead in the story should have been, you know, alleged longtime retired Boston mob figure Vinnie Ferrara is now the subject, the the number one subject 
uh, of a organized crime probe being launched by the state of Massachusetts. That's the story. Let me ask you, we, we generally on the show avoid, when, we, when I say we avoid talking about politics, I mean partisan politics, ideology, things like that. But we will talk about public policy, especially criminal justice policy. And th- isn't this strike? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to defend this guy on, on ethical grounds or that he's a, he's a virtuous person. But if due process means anything, I mean, isn't, isn't there a big problem with this that Uncle Sam can just take, confiscate? Yeah. They, well, they three hundred grand or whatever it is. Well, without so, without so, letting you know what it's for. I mean, isn't that a major violation of due process? Yes, and <laughs> you've got the law degree. <laughs> based on the hearing that took place a couple days ago, uh, the government came forth and said, "Yes, we were taking it because we thought you were doing something illegal." Um, and just by you and your attorney saying, "No, this was money that we." Uh, accrued from legal means, they have not proven that. So it was like in the, it, they didn't say it was like entrapment. <laughs> they, well, they didn't put into the pleading like, oh, here, you know, the, uh, the Ferrara's attorney, while, when he made this, when he filed this lawsuit, he didn't have any documentation of how that money was right. legally obtained. He just had a statement from Vinny saying it was legally obtained because I brokered a real estate transaction and I'm, I'm, uh, there's a, there was another excuse, but the, the, the bulk of the money, the 200, I'd say 250 of the 270,000 had come from this real estate transaction. But that's sneaky, man. That's really sneaky of the well, government if, to do that. Yes, but if it, if it was legitimate, then just put a, put yeah, but, a yeah, but it shouldn't be the, documentation of it. The burden shouldn't be on the citizen. The burden should be on the government. In a free society, the burden should be on the government that you're doing something illegal, not the but other that, way around. But that, that gets to a, that's a much bigger issue. And, and it's an issue that I don't think most people even understand that up to 10, 000, you know, anything over $10,000. Yeah. Yeah. If you're walking around with that money yeah. and you don't have a receipt for it and you're automatically assumed to have gotten yeah. that money illegally. Right. And hey, you a, have to, even if you're depositing it, yeah. you have to go on record. I mean, I was, I remember I was reading. Remember uh, that when uh, Carmela, remember when she would deposit, it was always, what was it? Uh, $9,999. Well, I, I remember a couple of years ago reading the book, um, uh, uh, let's keep it all uh, in uh, Boston-centric right now. I remember reading the book about White Devil John, who was a, a white criminal that, that uh, became a player in the Asian criminal world. And, you know, spoke fluent uh, Chinese and married a, a Chinese woman and was mentored by one of the the biggest uh, Chinatown gangsters in Boston history. But he didn't understand that driving across country with (laughs) $200,000, $300,000 in his trunk, it took him until well after his arrest for him to understand that that was illegal. And he he kept on saying, well, I didn't see, I had no contraband on me. I had no drugs on me. All I had was $300,000. I could have got that $300,000 anywhere. It's like, yeah, but according to our law, the law of the land, and maybe this is anti-democratic. We we find, I'm sure, many threads of of the American justice system that doesn't necessarily fit with the Constitution. Yeah. But according to... Our law, if you're found with more than $10,000 and you can't account for it, you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. 
ca- I mean cash. But they, but again, they they found it because they took it from him in the first right. place. Yeah. Without, and that's where again, like the due pro, like it seems like they, like it seems like they did that to to set off this chain of events that you're talking about, and that seems to me dirty pool. <laughs> but they also a- reiterated that Mr. Ferrara is the subject, the target of an ongoing organized crime investigation being conducted by the Massachusetts State Police and the Attorney General. Is he going to say that he's a professional gambler? Like, <laughs> like Jackie Jacqueline? Jackie, right. right. One, one of my favorite, I know this is not the chronology, but I love your reporting about the what was caught on the wiretap. Uh, I was laughing out loud when I read the, what the animal said to that. He was shaking down that 89-year-old. Oh, wow. But, so, okay, so let's now, let's go it gives back. gives you a little sense let's of go, what yeah, type of dude we're talking about. Let's here. go back a little bit. Um First, let's let's discuss the Jimmy Lamoli murder. Uh, Jimmy Lamoli was about ten to fifteen years younger than Ferrara. Uh, in the mid seventies, when Ferrara was starting to build a reputation and start to do the things that he needed to do to get made, uh, Lamoli became one of his right hand men, uh, kind of a gopher. Uh, driver, bodyguard. The FBI alleges that Lamoli helped Vinnie Ferrara make his bones with two murders that took place in the late 70s. Uh, one was a guy named Jack DeFranzo, and one was a guy named, I believe, Dapper Tony Carlito. Uh, and according to the FBI, Lamoli was involved in those conspiracies, uh, had helped Ferrara get rid of the bodies, I believe. This is all alleged. Yeah. Ferrara, uh, the only murder Ferrara was ever convicted of was of Jimmy Lamoli, and that uh, conviction was tossed. So fast forward to 1985, and Jimmy Lamoli is developing a bad reputation as someone that rips people off in drug deals, and not just anybody but rips off well-connected Boston mob guys in drug deals. Uh, And this put a target on his back, and Ferrara had sat him down, I think, on a number of occasions and told him that he needed to curb this behavior, um, that it was affecting Vinny because Vinny was vouching for Jimmy. So there was an incident that involved Frankie Boy Salemi, Cadillac Frank's son. Um, I think at one point, Lamoli and Salemi Jr. were doing rip-off drug deals together. They were around the same age. Yeah, okay. and Frankie Boy Salemi was... If he, he was had, a me- hot mess, too. He right? was a hot mess, but if yeah. Frankie Boy Salemi was known for anything, it was drug rip-offs. Yeah. That he would he'd set up these deals based on who his dad was and his name and ended up screwing the, the person on the other side of it. And uh, he almost got killed a couple times. I know one time he, he ripped off uh, a Boston mobster named Joe Black, uh, La Matina, uh, and uh, the Winter Hill guys, the Irish mob guys who were backing his dad, had to step in and, and prevent a contract from, from being put on Frankie Boy's head. So at one, so, so in, the, in 85, Frankie Boy and Jimmy Lamoli are, are doing drug ripoffs together. They're dating the same, or they're dating sisters. And the sisters live together. 
So they're almost like cohabitating. Yeah, family. And uh, they have a falling out. I think it was regarding a trip that Frankie Boy and his girlfriend had taken to Florida in the winter. And Lamoli wanted him back to pull the, the drug rip off, but Frankie Boy didn't come back, so Lamoli did it himself. Frankie Boy was upset. They started beefing over it. Anyway, by the fall, Lamoli ends up stealing $100,000 and $100,000 of Coke and then, like, I think $100,000 of cash that was in a gym bag that belonged to an organized crime figure in Boston named Anthony Spucky Spagnolo. Spucky was a soldier at that time. Eventually, he would become a capo of uh, the Revere faction. He'd become acting boss at some point. There's rumors today that he could be the boss uh, or the underboss. He's a very powerful Boston mob figure today. Back in 1985, Jimmy Lamoli stole $100,000 of cash and $100,000 worth of drugs from Spagnolo and... It got a contract put on his head. Um, the question is, who put the contract there? The government initially contended that Ferrara was tasked with the duty because Lamoli was Ferrara's guy. And then Ferrara, in turn, tasked three of his crew members, um, Patsy Barone, Walter Fats Jordan, um, what, maybe just those two. What year again was that? 85. This was uh, October 85. So it was... Uh, Andrulo's were... Jerry, was, Jerry Andrulo was in prison. But was he was he calling the shots from prison? Yeah, or, no, uh, 85 was when everything started to shift. So that that was... J.R. Russo and Vinnie Ferrara took over what was going on in Boston. So they would have called the shots on the... It was early on in yeah. Ferrara and Russo controlling... Boston proper because okay. Angelo had been in prison for two years. Angelo's brothers, the ones that weren't locked up uh, awaiting trial, um, couldn't really move around. I think the convictions came down in early 86. But but Jerry was off the street. Danny might have been on the street at that point, but he was under indictment. So Vinny and Vinnie Ferrar and Joe Russo were, were running Boston from 85 to 90. And one of the brothers wasn't even like a heavy, right? Wasn't he like more of like an advisor? I mean, he uh, was, was, a, a, was a finance guy. Frank, yeah. Frankie the Cat. I mean, I think he was, he was part of that inner circle, but he, he did wasn't. All the, he did all the, the bookkeeping. Yeah, yeah, right. He wasn't Danny like a street was a, guy. Danny Angelo was the, he was, was, was the heavy. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so uh, the question became who gave the order? Fats Jordan, Walter Jordan initially cooperated, went from the grand jury. He was him and Patsy Barone were the ones that killed uh, Lamoli. They set him up, killed him in the North End in front of a restaurant. Uh, Fast Jordan went in front of the grand jury. Ferrara's indicted, convicted, but Jordan recanted that testimony and instead said, "I was forced to say that Vinny gave the order." In reality. Vinny was trying to stop it, and Vinny had put a contract on my head, meaning Walter Jordan, and Patsy Barone's head because we went ahead and killed Lamoli for whoever else had given that 
order. Now, I'm speculating here. Spucky Spagnuolo has never been arrested nor convicted of murder. But if Lamoli stole Spagnuolo's drugs and cash and it wasn't Vinny Ferrara who gave the order, I would suspect it, it most likely came from Spucky. Yeah. It, it seems plausible that if this was the guy that the animal was mentoring Lamoli, he was mentoring this Lamoli guy, even if he's like a, you know, ripping off drug dealers and a piece of shit, it, it seems like it's plausible that he would try to intervene and say, give him a pass and let me try to straighten this dude out. It's also equally plausible that in this world, it doesn't matter if you view him as like a little brother or something. If the if the upper, you know, up, up the chain and says if, whack him, that's what you do. And if you believe the FBI, if you believe that Lamoli could put Ferrara away on two murders from the 70s, it actually benefits Vinnie Ferrara if Jimmy Lamoli isn't around anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's there's convergence of different. He, he's beefing with a, a lot of different people, and other people, uh, you know, I, I, it's it seems to me very plausible that that he intervened on his behalf. But I, it, it seems, I would say, if I had to choose a side, that the animal signed off on, on it, this. It's a, it's puzzling because you you think to yourself. Well, this guy was really running afoul of very, very powerful people. And even if Vinny had a soft spot in his heart for the guy, if we know anything in the mob, you know, a soft spot, a soft spot in your heart for, for someone is a quick way to get yourself killed. Yeah, right. So it's that how do you reconcile my loyalty to this guy and the fact that I obviously I like this guy, he kept him around him for ten years as his as his bodyguard and driver, or one of his bodyguards and drivers. Um, so, uh, you know, again, we don't know. We don't know for sure. What we do know, and I think it's an interesting anecdote to take from the hit itself, was that Patsy Barone, who allegedly um, pulled the trigger, but Barone had his conviction tossed as well. Uh, because of uh, of Fats Jordan, or because of the fact that the prosecutor had hid the fact that Fats Jordan recanted, but uh, so Barone never confessed, though. Just Jordan was the only. No, one. Barone, I believe Barone and Ferrara the, cop pleas, oh, guilty pleas to Lamoli's murder. Yeah, but they were their attorneys were never given yeah. the information that Jordan had recanted before those pleas were made. So if if we accept the premise that actually they, they they did they did carry this out, why does Jordan recant? Someone got to him. Would, Would that jo be Jordan? Well, if you believe Jordan now, Jordan's saying the government forced him to say that. The government forced him to say that Lamoli ordered the hit. No, but I'm saying if if we assume if let, let's say for the moment that that's bullshit, that the, why why does he why is he saying that? You know what I mean? Well, I'm confused. Wait, what's bullshit? So. Let's say that let's say that Barone and, and the animal said, "Okay, we're gonna whack this guy." They do it. They carry it out. Jordan says, "Yep, that's what happened." Let's assume for the moment that that is really what happened. Why does he then later on recant? 
Did someone, someone got someone got someone to, got to okay, him? Okay, right. that's what I'm assuming. Not not the government, right? right? Uh, and then there was a, a situation, or the situation when they killed him, whoever killed him, uh, if you believe, I guess, the original uh, uh, storyline or narrative that was given to the grand jury, Patsy Barone screamed at LaMoley as he shot him, saying, why, Jimmy, why? Why would you do this again? Oh. Because the the deal that they had brought LaMoley in on as a way to set him up, I guess LaMoley used it as another way <laughs> to rip people off. And he was trying, before he got killed, he had been trying to rip off Barone and Jordan in oh. a drug deal. Oh, God. So the, he had a, uh, a, a paper bag on him that was supposed to be money, and it was a paper bag full of, like, newspapers. Wow. And according to Fats Jordan's grand jury account, when Patsy Barone shot him, he, rec- he realized that he didn't have any money with him, like he had said, and then came back and started screaming at him when he was on the ground, why, why, Jimmy, why did you do this? Uh, and then unloaded his clip into him. So it was like there was, it was like, per- yeah, there was some personal animus. Yeah. Uh, that played into the narrative that this Jimmy Lamoli was off the reservation just ripping off anybody and everyone, even members of his own crew. Yeah, so it sounds like he was a dead man walking. Yeah. I I always thought that's why uh, Lee should have, uh, not to digress as we always say, but Lee, Lee should have, Christopher should have gotten killed before he did. The Sopranos. The Sopranos. Oh, there was a couple of <laughs> yeah, we're digressing. There were a handful of cop-outs, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, I felt like the murders of Christopher, Richie April, and Ralphie were cop-outs. Yeah, right. Were cop-outs. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yep. In terms of the, yeah, the right, they weren't underworld related, right? And they, but they were all three guys that had a deserved coming. to be <laughs> would have been killed in in and most of circumstances. Course. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so finishing up on Vinny the Animal, Jimmy referenced a um, a wiretap that Lamo or oh, that I love this. that that Ferraro was caught on, I believe in 1987, uh, at a restaurant. At the Prudential Center in downtown Boston, it's a, a mall. I've been there a number of times in my life. It's uh, one of the nicer shopping areas in downtown Boston. And um, there was a restaurant, Italian restaurant called Vanessa's, that was a kind of headquarters for the Boston mob from like 86 to 90. And it was in the Prudential Town Square. And in the back room was a place they would take meetings. And uh, Ferrara, when he took power, just like a lot of guys do, they want to line everybody up. <laughs> and guys that aren't paying, for whatever reason, are, are called on the carpet and, yeah. and made to account for why they're not paying. Garfo did that, right? Right. Took- <laughs> There's a lot, I mean, a lot of people did. Ralph, yeah. Ralph and Joey did it when they took over Philly in the yeah. 90s. Um, so I know in, you know, in Chicago uh, in the 80s, same thing happened when the um, – Ayupa and, and Cerrone were going to prison, and you know Ferriola and Carlisi were taken over. There was a kind of a reorganization of yeah. you might not have been paying Joey and Jack, but you're paying us. Yeah, yeah. Um, new regime, new right. rules. 
And, you know, I know this is another digression, but just talk to Hal Smith, uh, biggest independent bookmaker in the city of Chicago and was kind of given a free, not kind of, was given a free pass by, by IUPA um, when IUPA got in trouble and was about to go away. And you had uh, that crew of, of that, Fer- that Fer- Feriola, Carlisi, uh, Ernie and Felice, Rocco and Felice group that, that was coming in after. And, and Solly D, Solly D. Laurentis, who's allegedly the boss today of the Chicago Mafia, you know, he, him and Louis Marino called Hal Smith to a meeting and they said, I don't care what's been going on the last mm-hmm. 15 years. You're you're paying us now. Yeah. We're the ones in charge now. Yeah, you know, new rules and and you owe us money. And he refused to pay them. And a a verbal altercation erupted where they were throwing racial epithets back and forth. Uh, Hal Smith, I think, called Sally D and Louis Marino guineas or oh, something like that. And as he was leaving, Sally uh, Sally D said uh, in one of his most famous quotes, "He's like, you, my friend, are trunk music." <laughs> And uh, within, uh, you know, a couple weeks, he was trunk music. Yeah, he wasn't joking. So uh, in 1987, Ferrara has taken over uh, the North End, uh, Boston, downtown Boston. It remind, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. it, another pop culture remember, it reminds me of Mogri. You guineas really cracked me up. <laughs> Right, Mo Green. <laughs> Jimmy can say that. I can't say it. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <clears throat> you goddamn guineas crack me up. So Ferrara tries to get his hooks in this kind of legendary Boston Jewish uh, bookmaker named Doc Sag- Sagnansky, uh, who I believe booked out of, out of Brookline. Um, and it was in his 80s, and he'd been he was now, he's almost 90. I'm looking at my notes now. He was almost 90. He'd been booking for like 60 years. Um, and I think just kind of like what happened in Philadelphia with the Riccobinis, who were, had, an, had a long-time arrangement where it's not that they weren't sending anything, but they were sending like a once-a-year package, like a Christmas package. Yeah. And that was enough for the whole year. So I think Sagnansky, Sagansky, um, Sagansky, had that arrangement with the Angelos, like starting in the 50s, where he would send a Christmas package or a holiday package because yeah, he was Jewish. Right. But that wasn't um, up to par for, for <laughs> Vinnie Farrar and J.R. Russo. So they call him and his right-hand uh, man, who was another elderly Jewish gentleman named Mo Weinstein. They call him to the back room uh, of, of the, the wired-for-sound Angela's, or sorry, Vanessa's uh, restaurant and uh, he tells Vinnie Ferrara tells Doc Sagansky, "You owe me half a million dollars right now for back pay, <laughs> and every week I want a piece." And Doc Sagansky says, "I, I have this uh, this this wiretap um, transcribed." He said, kid, "Kid, I'm almost ninety years old. How much longer do you think I'm gonna be in the bookmaking business? How much longer do you think I'm gonna be around here to earn for you?" He asks, and Vinny responds, frankly, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's gangster. <laughs> He's like, that's a YP. That's right. a your problem. That ain't a my problem. Right. Jeez, that's hardcore. <laughs> um, so that's a kind of a famous wiretap that, uh, that made it out uh, in the trial back in 1991, I think. And what happened was Vinny Farrar and his people ended up taking 
Mo Weinstein as collateral. Oh, wow. And they said to Doc, well, just to make sure you're going to come back and give us that half mil, we're going to keep your boy. Wow. Who wasn't a boy. He was a geriatric. He was yeah. like an 85-year-old. Damn. So they, they kidnapped Mo Weinstein, and the next day, Doc Sagansky came back with a bag full, half, you know, bag full of cash, half a million dollars. Wow. So, that yeah, that's the kind of guy Vinny Farrar was. But everything I had heard since Farrar came out in 05, 06, I think he came in early, I think he came out in early 06 or late 05, was that he was not actively shot calling that he would sell disputes and he would uh, dispense advice to Pete Lamoni and the, the Denunzios, the Denunzio brothers, Spucky Spagnolo, who are the guys that have been running Boston uh, for the last 20 years. Doc Lamoni, uh, Pete Lamoni died recently in uh, the last couple of years, uh, but Spucky and the Denunzios are, are still around. And, uh, but all my reporting and, and all my sources were that Vinny was not actively shot calling, although he wasn't completely retired. But according to this investigation right now, which we'll keep our eyes on, that it, it, it seems like the government believes that he might not be operating at the North End anymore. That's Denunzio Brothers territory now. They run the, they run the North End out of a social club called the Gemini Social Club. But, it seems that the belief of the AG in Massachusetts and the state police OC unit is that he's out in Norfolk County, which is a suburb, and uh, he shot Colin from the suburbs. One, one other thing that should be noted is this guy, you know, it's, he's, almost like a long, he's almost like a long-lost Detroit mob guy that somehow ended up in Boston. Because yeah. this guy is diversified like very few mobsters of his day and I, I just have heard that he's worth a lot of money legitimately um in real estate parking lots parking structures um if you go if you go down to the north end if you're familiar with the north end in boston it's it's very cramped and very um insular yeah and there's not a lot of parking availability no so if you control parking in oh, yeah. that fortune you could make a lot of money. And then you own the real estate where the build or the restaurants and cafes are. Yeah. Uh, not to mention what other real estate he might own. And, so, that's, and that's like a thriving area. Like yeah. there's always so traffic and I heard he came out of prison and, and I love North Boston. I love I love Boston. Yeah, so do I. I love the North End. North I love Boston. Really I you know, for people that don't know, I have a lot of family there and I've spent a lot of my life uh going back and forth between Detroit, Boston, Detroit and Providence. Um and I just I, I consider that area of the country just like I consider Chicago uh, kind of a second home. Yeah, Boston's me. one of my favorite American cities. So, you know, we'll, 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 keep, we'll keep an eye on it for you guys and let you know uh, as this progresses. I, I want to have Bob Ward come on and join us at some point this summer. He's a, a big-time mob reporter uh, on television out there, does a great job, has been, you know, reporting on Vinny the Animal for, for decades, and I spoke to him briefly. Um, we couldn't book him for this week, but uh, he's going to come on and hopefully give us a little more insight from, from that perspective. But So that's kind of what's going on right now. And then let's spend the last uh, maybe 20 minutes of the show doing a little bit of a retrospective and tying in where Jimmy and I are from, Detroit, uh, to the Boston underworld. And you, you might not think that there were a lot of connections, but there actually are quite a few. 
and some I've uh, written about at, on my web magazine the last month, uh, Gangster Report. Um, I've, I'm always uh, getting new contacts and new connections and people wanting to give me information to tell stories about. And I was lucky I had a, a former member of law enforcement in Massachusetts at the state level uh, provide me a, a you know a document dump, uh, <laughs> if you will, of of a bunch of old uh, organized crime task force memos and files back in the '60s and '70s related to, well, specifically related to an incident that happened in late 1969, where it looks like, according to two informants, it doesn't mean that it's factual. This has never been really adjudicated, but there were two informants um, that told Massachusetts state authorities that two men representing the Detroit Italian Mafia, two African-American men who belong to the Detroit Murder Row contingent, which was the the African-American um, strong-arm wing of the Jackalones, uh, Frank Usher and, and, and his whole crew. But there were two guys from the early seeds, I guess, if you'd say, the early seeds of Murdero. Murdero didn't really come into full bloom until the 70s, but I guess some of the early Murdero guys, one of them being Frank Usher's brother, uh, had gone out to Boston in the fall of 1969 with the belief that the black mob in Boston, which was run by uh, the Campbell brothers, uh, Alvin and Arnie Campbell, with backing from the Irish, surprisingly, uh, not the Italians. The the Winter Hill Gang were, were the uh, co-signers for the Campbell brothers' reign. In Roxbury, which was the African-American most African-American concentrated uh, part of, of Boston is, is uh, Roxbury and Dorchester. Is that where King Solomon's famous club was? Is that yeah, that neighborhood? Yeah, and then, you know, more recently, you know, like New Edition and oh, okay. all those guys, they came out of Roxbury. and um, So there was, there was some violence that erupted in September and October of 1969 related to this attempted takeover. And I don't think it had ever been reported before. And I uh, got all the documents together. I called some people that I knew. Um, and I put a story together. And I, I, it, it, it was pretty well received. And it was a short-lived takeover effort that, was, that proved unsuccessful. But, uh, and, I, and, and let me back up for a second. It, I guess it wasn't just, the, these two informants, they said it was a coordinated effort. It wasn't just Detroit. It was Detroit and the Columbos, which makes sense because we know that out of all of the New York families, Detroit is closest aligned to the Profaci Colombo crime family because of Joe Zerilli and Black Bill Toco, the founding fathers of the Detroit mob, married off their sons to daughters of Joe Profaci. And their brother-in-laws, or sorry, their brother-in-law was... Jersey Sal Profaci, who was a capo in the Colombo crime family. 
was actually famous for uttering the line, good fellows don't sue good fellows, good fellows kill good fellows, in a wiretap from uh, New Jersey back in the 90s. So these informants said that the Campbell brothers were on the ropes, which is true. They didn't just say this. Campbell brothers were on trial for murder in late 1969, tied to a triple homicide in Roxbury, uh, a small shooting war that erupted between the black mob in Roxbury, or two factions of the black mob in Roxbury. And the Campbell brothers and their and their top enforcer, a guy named uh, Dennis Chandler, who they called Deke. So Deke Chandler and the Campbells were looking like they were going to prison for the rest of their lives for this gruesome triple murder that took place uh, in Roxbury at a uh, an office of a uh, community activist group. Now, the community activist group were a bunch of ex-cons that had gotten government contracts, and it looks like they were, at least some of them, were veiling criminal activities behind community empowerment yeah. and civic uh, yeah. activism and yeah, that was part of the Great Society, right. and and we know some. This was happening in other places too, Chicago, New York, where gangsters were, and some of it was some of it was legit, but some of it wasn't. And this um, this group, which was known as the New England Grassroots Organization, which was set up and created by Guido Saint Laurent, who was sounds like a black or, oh sorry, sounds like an Italian or French name. It's it was actually an African American uh, named Guido Saint Laurent. St. Laurent, St. Laurent, came from Roxbury, was a convicted armed robber, had gone blind in prison because he had gone by, blind in prison and had, and had been some type of uh, leader behind bars, was, was, had a, his sentence com- commuted, came back to Roxbury, kind of reinvented himself uh, from a gangster to a community activist, but he surrounded himself with a lot of gangsters. Uh, they were able to secure a $2 million grant from the state, I believe, the, the Labor Department, from the from the state of Massachusetts. And the Campbell brothers, who were the ones that ran the area, felt like they were entitled to part of that $2 million. And they were harassing St. Laurent to give them a piece of that grant. St. Laurent refused. So according to what the prosecutors believed, the Campbell brothers and Deke Chandler stormed in there one night uh, around Halloween 68 and killed everyone that was there. One of the guys that survived the attack was a pimp armed robber named Cadillac Ronnie Hicks. And Ronnie Hicks was going to be the star witness at the trial of the Campbell brothers. And Whitey Bulger of Winter Hill fame who had met the Campbell brothers behind bars and, and just kind of like what happened in New York with Joe Gallo hooking up with Nicky Barnes. Um, something similar happened in Boston with the Campbell brothers in federal prison. They, they were armed. They were, they were bank robbers in the fifties. They weren't racketeers. And uh, they pulled off a famous bank robbery, I believe in Canton or Plymouth, Massachusetts. And, uh, 
they went to prison. They meet Bulger. I believe it was in Leavenworth. It might have been Alcatraz. And they decide when they go back to Boston that they're going to coordinate their rackets. And Bulger taught the Campbell brothers, like, stop thinking about bank robbery. Yeah. Like, start thinking about drugs and numbers and extortion. Yeah, that, that reminds me of another movie, Public Enemies. Yeah. Remember when the outfit guys yeah. tell Dillinger, like... You're getting too hot for us. And, and why rob banks when you can <laughs> you can run, you know, horse betting and things like that, right? right? You make more money. It's less heat. It's less dangerous. So Whitey Bulger dispatches one of his hitmen, and they kill... The hitman kills Cadillac Ronnie Hicks before he can take the stand. Because there's no star witness at the trial... The Campbells and Chandler are acquitted. I'm sorry, you saying you saying the Winter Hill gang whacked out Winter Hicks? Hill whacked out Cadillac Ronnie Hicks on behalf of the yeah, Campbells right. and Chandler. Okay. So there was no witness to take the stand. So they still went to trial, but they were acquitted because there was no eyewitness. Uh, at this point, according to these informants, the Detroit Tokos Early Crime Family and the Colombo Crime Family send a group of African-American gangsters to Roxbury to take over. Um, one's name was Charles McDonald, who went by the uh, nickname Ratman. And then the other was Greg Usher, Frank Usher's older half-brother, who went by the nickname Bugs Moran or Bugsy. Uh, Frank Usher, as you know, went by the nickname Big Frank Nitty. He was the Jackaloni's protege, uh, ran their their black crew, was one of the biggest drug kingpins, African-American crime lords in America in the 70s, went to prison for a, his own, you know, triple, triple murder, got out on appeal, kind of lived quietly the last 20, 25 years of his life and died uh, of COVID actually. But his older brother, I think, is still alive and serving life in prison, along with Charles McDonald, for violence attached to this takeover attempt. Um, so they got to town around Labor Day, and uh, they link up with some Italians. I'm guessing an arrangement put together by either the Columbos or the Detroit guys. There was a, a guy by the name of John... I think his last name was Bano, B-A-N-N-O. They went by the nickname Jackie Touch. So he's kind of like their point man, if you will. And they're, they're going in there to take over drugs, prostitution, and uh, uh, numbers. So I guess there was some type of meeting at the Sugar Shack, which is a place we should talk about a little bit. Because we love we love uh, talking about um, establishments that have deeper uh, roots or threads than just gangster stuff. The Sugar Shack was the place in Boston in the '60s and '70s to go consume R and B. I mean, all of the biggest African American entertainment acts were at the Sugar Shack, and that was the Campbell Brothers' headquarters. I guess there was some type of meeting between McDonald and the Campbells that ended in McDonald cursing the Campbells. The Campbells telling him basically, get the hell out of town. And if you're in town doing business, 
you're paying us a piece. And he's saying, no, I got my own people that I report to, and you can't tell me what to do, and I'm going to sell drugs and pimp women in front of the sugar shack, and then in, and in you're in front of your house in Roxbury. Uh, so I, according to eyewitnesses. Straight up just muscling. Yeah. Straight up old school, like right. I'm just going to muscle my way in. So I'm not sure if the, the plan was launched thinking that the Campbells and Chandler were going to be convicted and there would be nobody there to stop them or they just felt like the Campbells and Chandler were on the ropes regardless and they were about to fall in another case because the the thinking that the law enforcement wouldn't be satisfied with the acquittal and they go after them again for whatever by 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 September there's this meeting at the sugar shack McDonald I guess is kicked out of the sugar shack like thrown out physically according to this report the Campbells and Chandler are like standing in the doorway. McDonald is out on the sidewalk. And before he leaves, he says, not only am I going to sell drugs and pimp women here, I'm going to sell drugs to your mama. Oh. And I'm going to pimp your mama out on the corner. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, so that sets off a spat of violence. Uh, Jackie Touch is murdered, like, the next day, I believe. By, by the Irish? By the, by the Winter Hill guys. Yeah. And in retaliation for that, McDonald and Usher and a couple of prostitutes that they were running around with. No, no, let me back up for a second. I, okay, I, I'm, I'm getting the, the, the events, the sequence wrong. After the altercation at Sugar Shack, within a couple days, McDonald and Usher are going to kill the Campbells and kill Chandler. Um, there were a number of shootouts that occurred where nobody was killed, but there were gunfire exchanged between McDonald and Usher, Chandler and the Campbells. They don't find Chandler or the Campbells to kill, but they find the fourth fourth guy on the totem pole, who is a guy named Willie Poison. I think his name is Willie Green, or sorry, Willie Gray. They called him Poison, Willie Poison. So Willie Poison and Deke Chandler were the two hitmen for the Campbells. They weren't successful in killing Chandler or the Campbells, but they find Poison, and they kidnap Poison, and they execute him um, at a at a park. I think the day after they execute poison or 48 hours after they execute poison, Jackie Touch is killed. Um, now. But he how, wasn't a made guy, though. No. But he was, he was, was, was he, he connected was, to yeah, the patriarchs? Connected, connected to the patriarchs. So this, this could turn into a whole shitstorm yeah. of like. He was pimping for the patriarchs. So they must not have appreciated him getting whacked by. See, I don't know. I don't know. I, that, none of that's in the yeah. in the documents I got. But what I learned going forward from that, which is, you know, how people get caught is, is sometimes the most fascinating aspect of a crime because you can pull off the crime so well, and then if you're not if you're not due diligent in your cover up of the crime, pulling the crime off itself it, it is almost it does not almost it doesn't matter because you're going to prison for the rest of your life. So 
they decided that the best way to get rid of the murder weapon, or McDonald and Usher decided the best way to get rid of the murder weapon is to give it to these prostitutes that they're running around with, tell them to dispose of it. The one prostitute who has the gun decides to keep it, not dispose of it. Like three weeks later, she gets drunk or high. She's in a taxi cab, and she starts shooting the gun. Oh, God. The taxi cab driver calls the police. The police arrest her and are able to match the gun and the bullets from the gun that she's discharging for no apparent reason to the murder of Willie Poison, and she gives up McDonald and Usher, who are convicted, sentenced to life in prison. I'm not sure what happened to Charles McDonald. I'm heard, I've heard Usher is still alive, changed his name uh, to, to a Muslim name, murdered someone in prison in Boston, or sorry, in, in the Massachusetts Department of Corrections, murdered someone in the late 70s and uh, is, is serving out his uh, life sentence if he, if he is still alive. So I have a lot of questions. I mean, I know, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but first of all, how, how are the Detroit guys finding out about the unrest or the, the, the Campbell's power potentially on the decline? How do they find out I'm about guessing that? guessing it's from, from the Columbos. From the Columbos? So what, what, the, what some of those reports said was that McDonald and Usher for the summer of 69, weren't in Detroit. Mm. They were in New York on loan from the Jackalonies. Mm. So I don't consider myself an expert on the Colombo crime family. I do know that there was some unrest in the late 60s. Uh, you know, the first, so there were three separate kind of Colombo wars. There yeah. was the one that with Profaci and the Gallows. Right. And there was kind of a, a mini flare-up in the in the late 60s, early 70s, and then there was the final one in the 90s. So I don't know if the Columbos sought help from Detroit for the unrest that was going on, and that's why McDonald and Usher got shipped out to um, New York City that summer. But they didn't come from Detroit to Boston. They went from New York to Boston on, according to these reports and, and these files, on order from the Jackalones who were sending word to New York via the Columbus. So, but that still doesn't explain how they... I don't know. They were on the East Coast, but we... I'm guessing that... So, just speculating, the Columbus were made aware of it. Yeah. Well, I I guess I still don't know how how were they made aware of it from Boston. Yeah, I I don't know. Through Patriarca? Yeah. It's just interesting, the grapevine here, how... how, And so... You got to remember, at that point, Joe Zerilli's on the commission. Yeah. Um, Joe Colombo is alive. Raymond Patriarch is alive. They're all on the commission. So the other question I have then is why, if someone's going to move in on that, why isn't it Patriarch? <laughs> why? I mean, why isn't he sending his own guys? Why isn't he sending his own guys? And 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 even if okay, he's not going to. Would the Detroit slash Colombo guys have to cut them in? Because that's right in the heart of their... No, I'm guessing that, yes, that that was part of the plan. That the patriarchs would have gotten a piece of it. Yeah. And that was what Jackie Touch represented. Yeah. Jackie Touch was the patriarchs' representative. Yeah. At least from what I could have... What I read and gleaned. Yeah. They were told when they get to Boston, 
go find Jackie Touch. Jackie Touch is the patriarchal guy in, in the, the rock in the Roxbury area. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the reasons might be the fact that the black mob in Boston at that time was being puppeted by the Irish. Maybe the the Italians didn't have any African American um, people or or, or uh, criminals or gangsters, I guess, to to go work for them. They needed to import. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, and also it could have been like more caused more diplomatic problems if Patriarchas guys try this directly because of the Irish. The Irish and Italians are making a lot of money together. And see what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so it's it sort of a proxy. Like, it we could get we don't have to get our hands dirty. Let the New York and Detroit guys go mm-hmm. in there. We'll get our little. We'll get our cut of it. And we don't have to get our hands dirty. We don't have to have any kind of direct dust up with the Irish. So I'm just speculating, but maybe that was like. And then there's some foreshadowing. There's some foreshadowing here. Um, And I want to turn it over to Jimmy in a second to talk about it from a more socioacademic point of view. But, and we talk about how allegiances in, in the underworld are fluid. So fast forward five years, Winter Hill is in Detroit working with the Toko's early crime family, fixing horse races. So it went from, in 1969, they're on opposite ends of this shooting war. And then five years later, because it benefits both of them, they're allied or aligned in a conspiracy to, to fix horse races. Yeah, we see that all the time in the underworld. And, and that's a universal thing, African-American, Irish, Italian cartels. It's a pretty much a universal thing that it the, the relationships and alliances are based on uh, profit yeah. <laughs> and uh, what's what's more lucrative at that moment. Well, so, so so yeah, so look at it from a logistical point of view. At that point in the seventies, Winter Hill has in its midst Tony Chula, who was considered the number one race fixer in America. Okay, which crime family in America has access to a elite? Horse track. Yeah. With stables. Yep. Oh, the Toko and Zerillis in Hazel Park, Michigan, right outside of Detroit. So they make some, you know, Patriarca and Zerilli make some type, or not, I shouldn't say Patriarca. Bulger Bulger, and his people make some type of deal with with Toko and Zerilli. And they didn't just, like, come in here for a second. They were here for, like, an entire, like, half of a year in 1975, 76. And they set up shop at Hazel Park. Um, and they embedded here. Yeah. I mean, Whitey wasn't here for the whole time. Sure. But Whitey's guys, Tony Chula and his crew, were here from like April to October. We're at the horse track every yeah. single so day. So that's some significant coordination yeah. between the two. And then going uh, forward even further into more recent times. In the early 80s, you had the YBI, which was the uh, biggest black drug dealing organization in Detroit um, at the time, maybe ever, uh, redefined the drug game in so many different ways. We talked about them a lot in our recent episodes with Daryl Chambers right, and, also and, and Doc uh, Davis. And, Doc Davis. And, and YBI was so so transformational, so influential even though they were only around for about five years, six years. So 
one of YBI's founders and leaders, Dwayne Davis, a.k.a. Wonderful Wayne, a.k.a. WW, left Detroit. So the so uh, YBI is founded in 1978. They lasted till about 1985. WW left Detroit in 1981. And where'd he go? He went to Roxbury. He went to Boston, Massachusetts with his YBI crew that he called the H2O crew. And they took over the Roxbury projects. And for a big chunk of the 80s, drug dealing in the Roxbury streets was being controlled by a group that eventually became known as the Detroit Boys. Mm. Um, And they were all WW guys. Now, WW came back a year later to Detroit and was murdered because of but that was the jealousy yeah, that was and, the, and the yeah. insecurity that but Butch. Butch Jones, the the self-proclaimed boss of YBI felt uh with 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 WW going around the country and planting flags, uh he he saw it as um subversive, I guess. Yeah. But there was a ton of YBI presence in Boston from eighty two to you know, throughout the rest of the decade. And I'll, I'll end it at this, and then, you know, you can ask me whatever you want, and we can wrap it up. Again, tying it into pop culture, which we like to do, one of WW's main Boston lieutenants when he came to Boston was a guy named, uh, I'm blanking on his last name right now, but his nickname was Stevie Shots. So it was Steve something, but they called him Stevie Shots. And Stevie Shots was best friends, childhood best friends with New Edition. And Bobby Brown. And Stevie Schatz was murdered in Whitney Houston's Bentley in front of Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown. I believe it was 1989 or 90. Uh, They were in Boston. They were in Roxbury. Bobby Brown was at the peak of his fame, uh, was going back home, I believe, to introduce Whitney Houston to his family. They went out to a club with his his longtime best friend, Stevie Schatz, who was one of WW's guys. They were outside of the club having a conversation in the Bentley, and someone blew Stevie Schatz's head off in front of Whitney and Bobby. BBD. Right. <laughs> so that that's kind of the – that was the final Detroit connection into the Boston well, uh, I, underworld. I, I have two questions. Um, the first one is actually goes back to the Winter Hill – Roxbury stuff. Is it possible that in 69, 70 that I understand like the grapevine is, you know, people are talking to each other. People get to know each other in prison. People, you know, we're talking to each other maybe more than we would, we would assume underworld people from different cities. Is it possible that Bulger and the Winter Hill gang did not appreciate or know that Usher and that other guy were connected connected to Italians yeah. in Detroit yeah. or New York. Yeah. Seems to me like they might not have. Who known. knows at that meeting at the Sugar Shack what Charles McDonald did or didn't, didn't say. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. It seemed like reading the accounts of people that were there in these files was like he wasn't there to explain. He was there to tell. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, hey, just so you know, right. I'm in town and I'm doing what I what I'm I'm doing what I came here to do, and there's nothing you can do about it. And the Campbells were like, no, 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 no. This is our city. If you're going to be doing that in our city, you're paying us a tax. So, yeah, I, I, it, 
Yeah, so that that's an interesting aspect of it I, to the extent that what, what Bulger and Winter Hill, what they knew was going on. And the the, the Winter Hill, from, uh, not someone who's from Boston, but kind of understanding some of the Boston geography, you know, Winter Hill and Roxbury aren't far from each other. Yeah. Um, the other question I was going to ask is, it, it's interesting, or maybe not so much a question, but just get your thoughts, that the African-American underworld, if you think of some other cities like New York, Philly, Chicago. Very little. It's pretty much unimaginable that some guy, whether YBI or or the Jekyll and Hyde guys, would go in there and be like, we're, we're colonizing. <laughs> from an, I mean, think about it. Yeah. The, the, the uh, Black Brotherhood in Philly. Chicago. Well, they all, well, there's the, no. I just it seems the unimaginable. Black, the junior, the junior black mafia in Philly and the, the initial Philly black mafia, they worked very closely with the Italians. Oh yeah, right, right. Um, in Chicago, not so much now. Yeah, but there were times when the gangster disciples and the vice lords. Oh yeah, uh, were working with the outfit in certain things. Yeah, they Larry Hoover and and. Um, uh, who's the the vice lords guy? Um, Jeff Fort. Uh, is Jeff Fort? Is that is that uh, vice lord? Okay, so those are the two biggest Chicago streaking. And, and then who's who's? And the, they're actually locked up together at Florence. It, yeah. That's what everyone finds so I guess ironic that you have these two guys that are kind of supposed to be rivals and yeah. uh, to a degree. They're the two biggest names in the history of Chicago street gangs. They're both in their 70s, and they're both in 23-hour lockdown, like, next to each other. Who's the black Peastone Rangers, though? Who was that guy? I thought that was Jeff Fort, no? Oh, okay, I'm I'm confusing. You're right. Willie Lloyd was Lo- yeah. voice lords. Yeah, yeah, right. Fort was Peastone Rangers. Yeah. So, but but um, Hoover and those, the, those, Hoover o- was gangster those OGs modeled themselves after the outfit. They were like... This is what we need to do in our neighborhood is is run it like an enterprise, not just stick up men and right. p- people like that. So, and vice lords were West Side gangster disciples, South Side. Yeah, one of these days we got to do a Chicago gang. Um, so, but any, either way, um, so but but think about the, the they, situation. They could have moved was, in on Chicago. But think know? about the situation in Boston at that time. The Campbell brothers did not have a relationship with the Angelos. A good point. Yeah. As like those other. So it shows re- you the currency, how, yeah. how significant right. that They had a relationship is. with the Winter Hill guys. Right. They weren't paying any tax to Angelo. Right. right. So I'm guessing the, Itali- the Italians looked at Roxbury as valuable territory that they wanted a piece yeah. of. Yeah. But that's a, that's a great point because if, if the Campbells were very much part of the Angelo patriarchal network, I bet this doesn't go down. It doesn't happen. I bet it doesn't. No. <laughs> but I think the only reason it happened is because they weren't. Yeah. And the and if if you believe these two informants, there just to be clear, there were other people in these reports that said McDonald and Usher were working independently and that they had not been sent. That they had kind of come to this conclusion themselves and yeah. were trying to go in to Roxbury by themselves. Well, and and there it's, it could be somewhere in the middle. They 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 might have had this idea I find and they that, and they ran it by the Jack Jackalones yeah. and they were like, "Yeah, okay, do you know what I'm saying? Like it I could find be. it difficult to believe though that two people could think out of towners. Yeah. Think they could come into a city that they didn't have any ties to. Yeah. And they didn't have an organization behind them. Yeah. And thinking that they could 
find any success. Well, that, but I, that's what I mean. Like they they may have masterminded it, but they they made sure that yeah. they had. And I, had never, and I had never heard of either of these two guys before. I had never heard of Charles McDonald, and I did not know that Frank Osher, I didn't know he had a brother. Not Frank Osher had a, a half-brother. No, no, he was a serious dude. And I guess a scary uh, guy. Greg Usher also went by Greg Pickles, and he also has a, a Muslim name. But I, find, I also find it kind of amusing, though, that it, it seems like Tony Jack nicknamed the two brothers Frank Nitty and Bugs Moran. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. we know that Frank Usher got his nickname from Tony Jack, yeah. calling him Frank Nitty. Yeah. And it, so it makes sense when people are telling me, oh, yeah, and his brother was Bugs Moran. Yeah. That Tony Jack also coined that nickname yeah. for. And they, those guys were on opposite sides of that war, the the Chicago. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I, it's just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if Tony Jack cared, but like but, you know, but, those are both gangsters from that era. Well, whenever I talk to people about that, it, and this kind of, I think, uh, alludes Jimmy and I uh, because of our generation, but we didn't consume the. The Untouchables. We consumed no. the film, The Untouchables. Right. But the Untouchables television show, I guess, was incredibly popular yeah. in the 60s. And Frank Nitti and Bugs Moran and all those, those were characters in that yeah. TV show. Babyface. Now, all those Prohibition yeah. era uh, so I think bank that, robbers. I think that's where some of that came bootleggers. from. That, that's where that, some of it came from. Where that makes like, sense. They were popular television figures that were in the ether yeah. in the 60s, even though they were guys that, didn't, that had lived 30 years before. That makes sense. Well, thanks. This is a great show. I, I, I really was, uh, I wanted to talk about this for a while ever since you broke these stories. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Please follow us on social media at Gangster Podcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We've got some stuff we're working on, and hopefully we'll uh, talk to you guys soon. Jimmy Bucciolato. Scott Bernstein. OG oh. Podcast. We're out.